Uh, Mark, if you wouldn't mind, we're just going to do what we normally do, walk around and give the mic. Anybody who wants to can, can read a paragraph. Anybody who doesn't, just pass the mic or let uh, Mark know to send that mic on to the next person. So with that, let's un- it's understanding the doctrine of God. This is, your, this is your God. He is holy in every way possible, in all he is and all he does. He is the source of everything that exists, and he does not need anything that exists. His knowledge of everything is always accurate, and he is forever without need of being taught anything. He is never surprised, never unaware, never unprepared, never confused, and never distraught. He never needs to discover, and he never needs to unlearn or relearn anything. What he thinks, purposes, declares, and does is always right and true. His judgments are never mistaken, biased, or wrong. Keep going. Yeah, just keep running going. Everything that exists depends on him for its existence. He alone sits on the throne of the universe, and he rules it according to his all-wise and holy will. His perfect rule is not dependent on the instruction or counsel of anyone. He does what he pleases, and what he pleases is always right and best. He is the source and definition of goodness, love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He is holy and righteous, while at the same time being patient and tender. All good gifts, physical and spiritual, come from him. He hates sin, but forgives all who come to him in heartfelt confession." Keep right on rolling. God is a trinity of three persons, but all of one substance. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These are not the delineation of three functions, but are three distinct persons. The trinity is the ultimate community, functioning in perfect unity and love, without argument, debate, or disagreement. Okay, so the question is, what description of our, our doctrine of God causes you to ponder more so than other. Which one kind of grabbed you? And I'll, get the, the, I'll just prime the pump here a little bit. One of the things that was new to me when I uh, moved to a Reformed church was how people prayed. There was a unique thing that some people would say, and I thought, and I would think about this when I heard that. I never heard anybody pray that way. And it, it, it is wrapped around this understanding um, in the third line there in the second paragraph uh, it says, what he pleases, and then this is the comma, and then this is where I want to talk about. And what he pleases is always right and best. And so what I would hear people pray, which I thought after pondering it for a while, which was very mature, is they would pray something along these lines. May it please God, and then they put their petition forward. And they, and they are recognizing that whatever pleases God is good, right, and just. So it's perfect. So it's like, oh, wow, they're talking about his will when they're asking for something. They're front-ending it. They're fronting it rather than ending, but thy will be done. And so that has always struck me, and I thought, that's, that's kind of a neat way to pray. That's a neat way to remember that no matter what is happening, God is in control, and what he does, what pleases him, and the big picture of salvation, what all the moving parts of salvation. All right. Anybody else have anything about that doctrine of God that helps them understand or, or see God or, uh, or is just neat? Rob Boy, do you want to say something? <laughs> hey, Mark, I think that I saw him lift his head. You know, <laughs> I didn't. I, I could. There you go. 
Well, Rob, well, you can help us move in that direction. All right, so this is officially one of the few times where I am on the spot. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um, the, just generally, I think intuitively, all believers understand that the doctrine of God is important to understand hmm. because it's our God. It's, it's the God who has no beginning and end. It's the God who knows all things, who needs no teacher, needs no counselor. He is from beginning to end. All things are from him, through him, and to him. And this God has revealed himself to us so that we can understand a small part of who he is. We will never know God the way that God knows God. Amen. And yet, he allows us to know enough of him, reveal enough of him that we know that we can never know enough about God, mm. that we'll always continue to be learning about God. And intuitively, we understand that there's a right way to understand God and a wrong way to understand God, a God-centered way to understand God and a man-centered way to understand God. And that if we're going to understand God rightly, it is going to be God who gives us the right way to understand him. And so we have to seek him uh, according to not only general revelation that all have through nature and creation and even ourselves and conscience, but also through the special revelation that he's revealed throughout time and captured in his word. And so when you have Peter writing in... Um, First and Second Peter, just these glorious letters, and he talks about when he was there during Christ's glorification on the mountain. And he talks about being there, but in the context, he says, now we have the more sure word. Like, he was there, but his experiences, his eyes, his ears were not trustworthy enough even though he was an eyewitness of those events, compared to the more sure word. And it's true in 1 John where it says that um, the testimony of God is greater than the testimony of men. So to understand the doctrine of God, we've got to go to God. We've got to go to his perfect, holy, and errant word in, under, in order to understand him correctly. That's good. What I heard you say... God through God's eyes are we, um, uh, how God understands himself, which is, if I, that's a kind of a loose way of saying God explaining himself. He, of course, uh, understands himself. We have to presuppose what God says about himself, and that has to be the main driving understanding. If we do, like, like a lot of Christians get locked, uh, I shouldn't say locked into, but get sucked into, we take the man sort of way, the humanity sort of way, and we go all off of our experience. God is, is, this is who God is based solely on my experience of God versus the presupposing, no, 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 God has said this. How does my experience line up with that? Uh, go ahead, uh, Gary. Well, one of my uh, aha moments since I've um, adjusted my theology to reform theology is uh, in the second paragraph, the second sentence about his a perfect rule is not dependent on the instruction or or counsel of me. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How often before that that I want to be God in my life? Yeah. yeah. Amen. Been there. Still find myself occasionally standing there going, yeah. trying to be that guy. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. What description of our doctrine of God causes you to ponder more so than others? I am now sitting silently before the light of my screen, amazed at what I've just written. The words are accurate, and they expand your mind and excite your imagination, but they still fall short of doing justice to the immensity of the being and glory of God. In my heart, I am saying with the psalmist, who is like the Lord our God? It is the ultimate rhetorical question that expects the resounding answer, no one. Nothing has ever existed or will ever exist that is remotely like him. There is a huge dividing line of holiness, power, Glory, knowledge, wisdom, love, grace, justice, sovereignty, and sufficiency between the creator and the creature. This line cannot and will not ever be crossed. So we bow in amazement, in submission, in dependency, in worship, and in love before his awesome majesty. Hmm. Makes you want to break into a doxology. I was raised in a Christian home, but in my youth, the God of my thinking was a shrunken pseudo-deity, far from the God of the Bible. My brother Ted came home from college and began to talk to me about the total control of God over all things. It was a piece of the doctrine of God I had never heard or understood in the way he was communicating it. Our conversations flooded me with questions, hurt my pride, and made me angry. During one of our debates, I got so mad that I took off my shoe and threw it at Ted. (laughs) A day or two later, he brought me a paperback copy of the Bible Bible, and a yellow marker and said, this summer, read through the Bible and mark every instance of the sovereign rule of God over all things. It also challenged the trajectory of my life. I was not only moved by the picture of God's complete rule, but I was also blown away by his inestimable glory. There you go. Good. Wonderful. Hey, before we read that next paragraph, something a little bit of dynamic that I want to give you a family dynamic on these brothers. Ted is the lesser known bigger brother, older brother, I'll sort of put it that way. Um, Ted has written some wonderful books on child care and and raising and and dealing with a child's heart. If you get an opportunity to read Ted Tripp's books, um, you can uh, really see that he's, he's really taking us from a rules-based interaction with our children to drawing out the gospel in their heart and, 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 and helping them to see a need and a dependency for God. It's, I find it fascinating that Big Brother does what he did for Little Brother, and Little Brother goes on to get more fame. Now, he's not looking for fame, but isn't that a neat picture of how siblings can be these encouragers that can help other siblings and not draw the glory unto themselves. What a, what a challenge he gave. And I, I, some of it, I can't help but think that there must have been a love between brothers for the younger bre- brother, Paul, to actually do what his older brother, Ted, said to do. How many of us would have gone, yeah, right, bro. Yeah, you, you do homework over the summer. I'm not doing any homework and wouldn't have done it. And yet the, there's enough of a loving dynamic that he followed. He says, okay, fine, I'll take up the challenge. Kind of a neat picture. Okay, let's continue on. Few believers suffer from a God who is too big, but many suffer from a God who is sadly too small. We all have to take care that our limited ability to conceive or imagine doesn't restrict our theology of God and his glory. 
We cannot allow ourselves to hold a theology that shrinks God down to a manageable size. The problem is, is that when you are working to understand any concept or term, you always begin your process of understanding from the vantage point of your own experience. If I use the term father, you will define that term based on your own experience of your own father until I define more specifically what I mean by that term. When it comes to God, no experience in my life is comparable to who and what he is in the purity of his holiness and the expansiveness of his glory. So here are some thoughts about the glory of God's glory. Wonderful. He's going to start off this next section with a, a helpful picture of, of and try and draw us into understanding this scene before he goes into the, the definitions that he's going to deal with as far as trying to understand glory. Love teachers that can draw us in, get something in, pictured in our mind, and then we go, okay, now I'm ready to tackle this. So go ahead. Read, read the glory of God's glory. I will never forget that evening. My ticket put me in the first row, and it was worth it. I was never before blown away by musical composition than the night I attended the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. The music was powerful, foreboding, haunting, compelling, and glorious all at the same time. There were moments when I wished the night would never end and moments when I wanted to get up and run out of the concert hall. Pause right there. Listen how he's describing this. I'm afraid I'm too shallow for some of these things. This is a man who loves and is moved by the composition of the music, and he's in, he's in touch with it. And he's experiencing the, 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 the back-and-forth flow of this. So let's continue on. There were moments when the music caused your chest to rattle and moments when it turned you with a whisper. There were moments when music musical joy collided with with musical fear in a beautiful disharmony of sound. When the music was over, I felt both sad and exhausted. I both wanted more and felt like I had had enough. Mm. I didn't know why this particular performance had affected me so until I looked at the program and read the line under the name of the composition. It said, God, the most formidable word ever spoken. Mm. I had experienced the wonderful attempt of a very gifted composer whose name I cannot recall to capture God in all his amazing and variegated glory in a single piece of music. It was in some ways a triumphant effort and in other ways a dismal and embarrassing failure. For any human being to think that he could capture the glory of God in a single artistic statement is delusional at best and vain at worst. To squeeze what is infinite into what is finite is vastly more impossible to do than trying to insert the full body of an elephant into a thimble so that no part of it sticks out. It won't happen, no matter how gifted you are and no matter how hard you try. The composer had done marvelously well, but with his grandest piece, he had captured less than a drop of the never-ending ocean that is the glory of God. It would be impossible for me to list all the verses that tout the glory of God, because glory doesn't work that way. Glory is not a thing like a shoe, a stake, a candle, or a cottage. There are particular physical things that can be carefully described by words, so that you would immediately have an accurate picture in your mind of what is being talked about. One could draw a picture or take a photograph of a shoe, and you could see it and know what it is. But glory is not like that. No single picture could ever capture the glory of God. 
Glory is simply cannot be photographed. Glory is not so much a thing as it is a description of a thing. Glory is not a part of God. It is all that God is. Mm. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God does is glorious. But that's not even... But, but that's not even enough of a description of God's glory. Not only is he glorious in every way, but his glory is glorious. Scripture does, however, put the hugeness of the glory of God into the smallness of human language so that we can at least get some sense of what it's like. For example, the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 40, stretches human language in order to give us a little glimpse of God's glory. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand? Imagine how much water you could hold in the palm of your hand, and then consider that God could hold all of the liquid in the universe in his hand and not spill a drop. Mm. Who has weighed the mountains in scales? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket to God. He spreads the heavens like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah is employing incalculably huge word pictures to help us to have even a twinge of understanding of how glorious God is. Yet even these very picturesque and helpful descriptions fall miserably short of capturing the awesome glory of God. You know, it's interesting. I'm listening to him describe this, and I feel my, my heart starting to pound deeper, like, or quicker, like, well, tell me. You keep, getting, you keep using examples that are more grand and more grand. It's just it's amazing how we're attracted to the glory of God. We want it. We, we, we don't even realize that we're, we're being drawn to it. Go ahead, continue with the reading. We cannot gain a full understanding of the glory of God from a few passages because the reason God, the reason glory is glory is because it lives above and beyond that kind of description and definition. You can say for sure that God is glorious because your Bible declares he is, but you cannot accurately and fully describe in words the glory that the scriptures declare. Perhaps the only workable path into some understanding of the grandeur of the glory of God is to read the entire word of God again and again, looking for divine glory. Hmm. Why? Because the glory of God isn't hidden in his word. No, his glory is so grand that it splashes across every page of his book. Amen. When the Bible speaks of God's glory, what is it talking about? God's glory is the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. In everything that he is, God is great beyond human description. Every attribute and action of God is completely beautiful in every way. God is totally perfect in all that he is and all that he does. This is what we mean when we talk of the glory of God. It is the stunning reality that there exists one in the universe who is the greatest, the most beautiful, and the most perfect in every way. He is gloriously great, he is gloriously beautiful, and he is gloriously perfect. There is no one like him. There is no one that rivals him, and there are no valid comparisons to be made to him. He is the great other in a category of his own beyond our ability to estimate, understand, or describe. Every part of God is glorious in every way possible. He is glorious. There is nothing more to be said. And because God is glorious in every possible way, he alone stands in this vast universe as the only one who is worth the worship, surrender, and love of every human heart. All roads lead to heaven? Eh. No. There's only one God, one creator, who is worthy of the glory intended because he is the creator. Go ahead, PJ. I, I just wanted to take advantage of this description that's being given to say that I think this is a really good definition for the word um, holy 
And when we say holy, we're talking about God being separate, set apart, just distinct from everything. And so when we speak of the holiness of God, these are the things we're speaking of. And so for, you know, all the more does it seem impossible for me to be holy in any way um, as I try to reflect God's glory back to him. And um, so anyway, all I kept thinking was, yeah, holy, set apart, set apart, holy mm. um, in my mind. That's great. The, uh, you know, my understanding of holy for much of my Christian journey was a moral set apartness. He's, he's so he's righteous. I'm not. And yet, what you're just explaining is that this holy encompasses all of his otherness, all of who he is outside of his creation. And you're just sitting the mind just explodes with, wow, he's so, again, he keeps getting bigger as we keep digging deeper. And it's right there in his word. We just need the spirit to, to show it to us. And so we should be excited to engage every morning in our time of demo, devotion because this may be the day that God may take something that we thought we knew and, and, and understand it in a way that God just became bigger in our eyes because of what he has shared with us by the power of his spirit. Okay, we transition now into the glory war. We're going to take a hard turn here. Unfortunately, there's a bad side. There's a downside. There's this glory war that goes on between uh, his creation and, and made in his image and God himself. So let's take a look at this glory war. We must understand that because God is glorious, life is one big glory war. Each of us is hardwired by God for glory. We are glory-oriented human beings. We are attracted to glorious things whether it's an exciting drama, an enthralling piece of music, or the best meal ever. God built this glory orientation into us so that it would drive us to him. Because we're glory oriented, our lives will always be shaped by the pursuit of some kind. Sorry about the staple. Of, of glory? <laughs> Very good. Good job. Uh, what glory right here, right now, has captured your heart? And how is it shaping the way you respond to the situations, locations, and relationships in your life? So what he's talking about in that question is, is the, we, we just saw that glory is a good thing. That's how he has hardwired us. So we seek, ultimately, his glory. So he's not talking about the, 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 the war in a negative sense yet. He's setting up the background on, on, on how this war is going to play out. But at this point, at this juncture, he is simply setting out that it's good to, to be seeking glory or those things that make you realize glory. And so he talks about the, the, whether it's a beautiful composition, could be the, the Grand Canyon. Why do we go to the Grand Canyon? Could we stand on the, on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look at it and go, wow, yeah, it's, it's, it's much bigger than me. There must be a God that created this the way that God has done so. And the question is asking, what Glory right here, right now, has captured your heart. I will have to tell you, in the last three and a half years, um, since planting this church with you all, I am seeing more and more the glory of God played out in the church. Church isn't so much a place as a people. It used to be a place, a building, and seats, and then the people would come to church. The, the, the people, the church wasn't the people so much in my mind. I'm starting to understand the 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 that. The church is so much supposed to reflect as a body, one body, the image of God 
to the rest of the world. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, what an amazing thing that I'm starting to see happen, and yet we have so far to go. So it's a, it's a good glory that I'm starting to understand that I didn't understand in my journey as a Christian to the degree I am now being uh, uh, consumed by it in a good sort of way. Anybody have a, a glory? It might be a child. Uh, I was thought about Brooklyn when you saw your uh, uh, ultrasound. I mean, how could you not? I mean, you look at that child. And you, oh, God, you are amazing. Go ahead. Um, if you ever look onto my phone, which is not a good idea, but it is <laughs> full of clouds and sunsets. Mm. To me, clouds and sunsets are amazing. And every time I see one, I try to capture it for that moment because I know in 10 seconds it's different. Mm. And to me, that is just the awesomeness of the design, the awesomeness of it's there for that moment for me to appreciate reminds me that he cares about the little things. Mm. So the awesomeness of the sky and the design actually helps me to remember that he, he knows I appreciate that, and he, but he's involved in every little thing even something as transitory as a 10-second cloud or sunset. So, mm, that's a, and, and that that's the workmanship that he has provided for us amen. to enjoy. Amen. So I love that. I can shout. That's all right. We would prefer if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Pentecostal at times. I okay, okay. All right. Actually, I'm in the same vein, I'm that way with a rainbow. Because mm. when I see a rainbow, I s- see something that... Uh, Noah saw for the first time, and there's a there's a direct uh, connection that God has given those us those rainbows. Mm, that's good, good, Sean. So Psalm 19 declares what they're talking about. It says, "The heavens declare the glory of God." Amen. Um, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night knowledge. So um, this is not uh, you know a by chance thing. This is fully intentional in God's general revelation of himself. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, we got PJ and Rob Roy. Yeah, I thought I'd provide a a little bit of a different, non maybe less natural example. Um, As a kid, every once in a while, I got to go with my dad doing his work stuff as a police officer. And um, it was pretty cool the first time I saw him in a courtroom. I mean, my dad, I was homeschooled. My dad's like the only other human contact I have and people I know. And I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> I was terrified of my dad, you know, loved but terrified and uh, all of this. He's a big police officer, all of that. And then here I am watching him look small before the judge. Mm. Um, and the judge is mm. just, he's the man in the room. He's, mm. he's the boss. And uh, my dad's language, everything, I was like changing in the way he was talking to the judge in the courtroom. And, um, and so I can't help but think like this judge and his robes and everything, like he is glorious. Like this dude is, is the real boss and how much more mm. obviously our judge, um, our judge is that if, if you step in a room and if you have a hat on, someone's yelling at you, you know, if you step into that room with a hat, how much more God in, in his judgment. That's a great picture. You think about Isaiah 6 where the, the train of his robe, uh, fills the uh, the throne room. Um, and Isaiah sees it, and he says, whoa, it's me. I mean, he sees that. that. Rob, we're making our way back to you. Go Can ahead. Can I snag it? Yeah. 
Yeah, you okay. got it. I just thought of this passage, and I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear you exposit this in a sermon someday, if we're ever in Corinthians. But it says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered to them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of, the, of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man not, not ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And I don't know what he's saying about because of the angels there, but he is pointing out that, like, the beauty, the most beautiful part of man is woman. Mm. Like, no one looks at, like, a br- no one looks at the groom on a wedding day and is like, man, isn't he beautiful? <laughs> like, you got me on that one. <laughs> no, one s- no one stands up when the man is about to walk down the aisle. Yeah. But when the bride hmm. is about to walk down the aisle, everyone faces her glory in a way that is, and you, you know, her her full glory is for her husband. But th- like you know, it's it's like woman is the more, most glorious part of man, and then it says man is the glory of God. So it, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting relationship there. I would say that it's a, a different aspect that is uh, for in your what you are laying out in your picture is you get to see the, the glory of God in beauty more so in the woman than the man. Would that, that be... And the, yeah. Okay, and the passage itself is dealing with authority, and we can talk about that. I will preach on that one day. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be in 1 so Corinthians today, which is kind of neat. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about glory. As Sean mentioned, the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19. And it also says that we're to declare his glory among the nations in Psalm 96. And we're to let your glory be over all the earth in Psalm 108. And Isaiah 48, my glory I will not give to another. So this is exclusive glory. And going back to the natural example, when I was a a Christian, it had been about a year on business, I traveled to Florida, Fort Lauderdale, near Miami. And it was amazing to be within about 50 feet of the shoreline. You know, you have this hotel, and you walk out, and there's a sidewalk, then there's a road, and on the other side of the road, there's a half wall and beach. Mm. And, I mean, you, you are right on the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. So what was the custom? I was traveling with someone who had been there before, and we were there to, to, to do work. But in the morning, he said, we got to get up, and we got to join the crowds to watch the sunrise, mm. right? So we're all there early in the morning, and here comes the sunrise, right? And they got coffee shops out there, so you can imagine, right? And we're watching, and it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And as it concludes, this crowd of people breaks out into thunderous applause. Hmm. And as a new Christian, I was thinking, who are they giving thanks to? Hmm. Certainly not all of them are believers, but they can't help but marvel at this natural revelation 
to give appreciation to that which they had no part of, but clearly they're able to view and react to. And that's where it comes comes down to is God's glory is declared. He will not share it with any other. And there's a response to it that naturally is invoked. But where it actually lands is the question. Does it actually land with the God who, de- who deserves the praise for his glory? Or does it land some mysterious place aside from God, from what's obvious? And that's where this next transition, the sinful part, which I think is summed up in Romans, that we all fall, fall short of what? The glory of God. The glory of God. Amen. All right. In the interest of time, we will read, and I will just simply comment whenever there is a, uh, an underline. And we'll just, we'll get done in time. We've got five minutes. So where are we at? Where are we at? We're at uh, Sin Makes Us All Glory Thieves. That lovely, true statement. <laughs> um, sin makes us all glory thieves. Though God created us to live lives propelled by the glory of God, sin causes us to live for ourselves. Sin turns us all into glory thieves. We demand to be in the center of our world, the one place that should be for God and God alone. We take credit for what only God could produce. We want to be sovereign and we want to be worshipped. We set up our own law and punish people who get in our way and break our rules. We tell ourselves that we are entitled to what we really don't deserve. Mm. We complain when we don't get whatever it is that we want. And living for our own glory, we steal the glory that belongs to God. We want to be worshipped. I'm, I'm going to just make a comment on that one. We want people to praise us for the things we do for them. We do them not for their good. We do them for the worship they give us. Ouch. Uh, guilty. Let's keep going. Only God's glory can satisfy the glory hunger in our hearts. Inside every one of us is a glory hunger. There is a way in which everything we think, desire, choose, do, and say is done in the quest for glory. We all want what is glorious in our lives, but this hunger will never be satisfied by created things. If you could experience the most glorious situations, locations, relationships, experiences, achievements or possessions in life, your heart would still not be satisfied. Creation has no capacity whatsoever to bring contentment to our hearts. Hmm. The purpose of creation is not to satisfy our hearts, but to point us to the glory of the one who can satiate our hunger, and in satiating our hunger, give peace and rest to our hearts. Amen. Let's continue on, Mark. God's grace alone has the power to defeat the glory war in our hearts. This glory war doesn't rage outside of us. No, it rages inside of us. Deep and abiding glory disloyalty resides in the heart of every sinner. We all tend to continually revert back to self-glory. We do this because living for the glory of self is more natural to a sinner than acknowledging and living for the glory of God. We buy into the lie that imperfect created things can do in our hearts what the perfection of God's only hope for us, of God's God's glory can do. 
In our self-deception, we tell ourselves that we really can satisfy our thirst by drinking from dry wells. So the only hope for us is that this glory of God would invade our lives and rescue us from our own glory thievery. This is why Jesus had to come to earth, to live righteously on our behalf, to die for our thievery, and to rise again, conquering sin and death. In amazing grace, Jesus willingly came on a glory rescue mission, and because he did, there is hope for us that we will finally be free from self-glory and live forever in the light of the satisfying glory of God. That'll humble you. Let's continue on. There is only one who exists in the universe who is ultimate in glory, ultimate in greatness, ultimate in beauty, and ultimate in perfection. And he is all of these things in everything he is and everything he does. God has no glory inconsistency, and he has no glory rival. Everything comes from him, everything that is continues to exist through him, and everything is made for him. He is the bright and stunning star in the center of eternity, history, what is physical, what is spiritual, what is now, and what is to come. All life is found in him. To live in light of God's glory is not just about being spiritual. It's about recapturing your humanity because this is how every human being was designed to live. Perhaps the vision of God in 1 Chronicles 29 is what should capture the thoughts of our minds and the imagination of our hearts every day, no matter if we are a man or a woman, a child or an adult, young or old, single or married, rich or poor, no matter our race or ethnicity, and no matter where we live and work, put this passage on a card and tape it to the mirror you look in every morning. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of, our, of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Hmm. Now go back to the beginning of this chapter and read again the description of God's majesty. Take time to let awe of him capture the thoughts, desires, and emotions of your heart one more time. And then jump for joy that you are connected to this awesome one by grace. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we could have the opportunity to wrestle with our understanding of, of glory and our own sinfulness and trying to wrestle it away from you father help us not to be glory glory thieves but rather help us to humble ourselves seeking your glory and all of your creation which was created on your part to point to that very glory in christ's name we pray amen